0: Hello everybody and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. One of our favorite things, Tyler, when we're just hanging out and talking about the world is to talk about the Arctic. You know, I'm fascinated by what's going on in the Arctic. Me too. Um, A lot going on up there these days too. There is. There's a recent study released in the journal Communications Earth and Environment uh, that demonstrated, as they said, the robust fact that the Arctic has warmed four times faster than the rest of the globe since 1979. Things are changing up there, climate change, I guess, Tyler. Yeah, things are changing. And uh, like
1: everywhere on the planet, climate change is becoming noticeable. But up in the Arctic, it's becoming particularly noticeable. Things are changing very quickly. And you know, we don't think down here in the the lower latitudes. Right. We tend to not think about the higher latitudes, do we? No, we don't. But uh very consequential, very consequential and I'm seeing news stories every day, Peter, uh coming on coastal news today and throughout my LinkedIn feed about new viruses coming out of the permafrost and and yeah. people having to relocate because of sea level rise and just the changes that are happening all throughout that region. And today we've got a killer guest to talk about some of the geopolitical and social implications of all of this change going on up there.
0: We do, and joining us on the American Shoreline podcast today for a special episode about the Arctic and the sociopolitical implications of the modifications, changes going on, Dr. Robert W. Ortung, who is the a research professor of international affairs in the Elliott School of International Affairs. He is the director of research at Sustainable GW, George Washington University, and the Arctic program director at the Elliott School of International Affairs at GW. A real uh, cross-discipline expert in uh, Russian affairs, uh, sustainability, and climate issues in the Arctic. It's going to be a fascinating discussion to go up to the Arctic and see what's going on up there with Dr. Dr. Orton. I am
1: looking forward to it, Peter. But first, a quick word from our sponsors.
0: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science and remote sensing. Our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom and near shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Dr. Ortug, I hope my my introduction wasn't too far off. Uh, welcome Welcome to the American Shoreline podcast.
2: Yes, thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, Dr. Ortang, in, in some of the things that we've learned in, in, in the news that we post on Coastal News today, you know, over the last six or eight months, I've been fascinated to see significant things happening in the Arctic, and in particular with respect to Russia. Uh, it's been reported that the Russians are in the process of building about 14 icebreakers, many of them nuclear-powered uh, the Russians are building uh, nuclear power stations that they have floated up to the Arctic. About three or four reactors have been uh, constructed, I believe. Uh, they're developing LNG export, liquefied natural gas export terminals, new communities. Uh, the Russians are active. Uh, the waterways are opening in the Arctic. Uh, from your perch uh, and from your perspective, um, Is this the most profound age of change in the Arctic? And what do you think is uh, the most important part of what's going on nowadays?
2: Well, definitely from the way I see it, this is a a real age of change because we see obviously the ice melting in the Arctic. And Russia is definitely a a big part of where the action is. I think that's important because uh, you know the U.S. doesn't really consider ourselves an Arctic nation. We have Alaska is our only sort of Arctic component, to some extent Maine, which is pretty far north, but really Alaska. And obviously, as you mentioned, most people don't think about Alaska except for maybe to go on a cruise up there at one point in their life. But for Russia, the Arctic is a real part of their country, and they really take it seriously.
1: Well, I can understand why that whole northern, uh, I guess, coastline, I think it's safe to say, even though it's frozen a, a hell of a lot of the time, is in the Arctic. And one of the things, uh, Bob, that I have been having my eye on is, you know, if in the event that this is happening, it's not, it's not hypothetical, mm-hmm. as the warming uh, proceeds and the uh, sea lanes up in the north, it seems like Russia is, like, planning on building a whole new coastal infrastructure up there equipped with fuel depots, LNG facilities, these floating nuclear power plants. I mean, is that, is it, is, do we know, is it safe to say that that's what Russia is, is thinking in the, I mean, are they, are they trying to surf the climate change wave that much or that they're leaning into it like that?
2: Yes, th- definitely they are. Russia um, sees itself as benefiting from climate change. You know, it was always cold in Russia, wouldn't hurt to have a little warmer uh, temperatures. So that's partly the way they see it. But for sure, they see the Arctic as a place where they could um, set up what they call the Northern Sea Route. And the basic idea of that is that it'd be a much easier and quicker shipping route uh, to bring goods from Asia over to Europe. And so, you know, most of those goods now go through the Sinai, go through the Suez Canal. Um, and through egypt and you know that's relatively secure although obviously we saw a couple summers ago i think uh, when one of the big um mm-hmm. uh, freight ships blocked the way so the, so russia saw that as a huge opportunity to say look you know we could ship things faster through the north and and that's exactly what they're doing with all the icebreakers with all the infrastructure they're building up there they're trying to set that up as a sea lane that could move goods between europe and asia you know assuming the chinese uh, manufacturing continues, and, and the Europeans continue to buy it, and there's a lot of trade back and forth. Mm-hmm. But in fact, um, most of the time of the year, that's actually frozen over, and you couldn't really send the big uh, ships that carry all that cargo back and forth. So I think it's really more, you know, it, it sounds like an interesting idea, and even when, you know, all the ice melts in a 100 years or so, it's still going to be a very stormy region one that's not really suited for the kind of freight shipping that the Russians are talking about. Hmm. So I think it's a plan for the Russians, and it's a, a desire of Putin to have that be a major artery of trade, but extremely unlikely, in my opinion, to have Really? that
0: Do you foresee, as, as the conditions in the Arctic change, and we get uh, less ice maybe in more habitable conditions, uh, do you foresee in your work at the Arctic program at the Elliott School – of international affairs, are you and your colleagues anticipating a greater urbanization or population uh, development in the Arctic region?
2: Yes. I mean, well, to start off, the Arctic is highly urbanized as it is because most people who go up there live in you know cities of some sort. And in our projects, we define cities as anything over 12,000 people. And there's about 50 of those cities, mostly in Russia, but hmm. in the other parts of the Arctic too um and you know obviously the indigenous people have been living up there for centuries thousands of years and they're perfectly capable of living in you know the most extreme conditions they've figured out ways to make it you know to to survive you know even without high technology they can keep warm in the winter they can find food uh you know make it through mm-hmm. negative 40 degrees and it's not a problem so I think over time, as uh, you know, it gets warmer in the Arctic, temperatures are a little more <laughs> agreeable for most people. I think we do anticipate a migration flow up there. And for example, when I was in Northern Sweden over the summer, there, um, there's a huge boom in the green economy. They're doing more mining. There's wind power going on up there. They're building battery factories to use some of the local metals. And they hope to bring in, um, 20,000 more people at least as workers and other and other support staff for all the new manufacturing and, and business that's going to be going on up there. So there are definitely going to be opportunities for that kind of thing.
1: So Russia's not alone. Sweden is also trying to catch the climate change wave too, it sounds like.
2: Yes, to some extent.
1: Is Canada interested in catching the wave?
2: Yes, I think that they're also interested. Um, in fact, in our um, trip in the summertime, a Canadian mayor from Yellowknife came and to see what's going on in, in Lulio, Sweden, a northern Swedish city, um, you know, because the, the, these places in the Arctic are typically resource-producing areas with lots of mining, you know, obviously gold mining in, in the old days, and now there's iron mining going on in Sweden, diamond mining, And so in Canada, some of the mines are running out of material and they're looking for other opportunities, other economic Mm -hmm. development opportunities. So I think tourism is going to be a big one going forward, but they're looking for at all other kinds of manufacturing and seeing what they can do. You know, in Sweden, one of the big um, developments lately has been Facebook data centers. That's Hmm. uh, a good place for Facebook to put all of its servers that hold all of the information on your on your page. Uh, because there's plenty of free uh, of cheap electricity there from hydropower, and there's lots of cold air to keep all those computer servers cool you know since they heat up the building when they're all running twenty four seven
0: so we're talking about potential uh, increases in activity in mining, uh, energy production, uh, tourism, I would imagine shipping, potentially fisheries, other resource exploit exploitation activities. Uh, it's, is, are we facing the last great land rush on planet earth? I mean, we've sort of conquered and, and taken advantage of just about every other part of the planet. Uh, is the Arctic, the last great land rush?
2: (laughs) Well, definitely it could be.
0: Or water rush, maybe.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Depending where you are. Um, Certainly, there are some people who would like to see it grow and like to see the populations up there grow, and you know everybody who moves to Alaska or any other part of the Arctic wants to bring all the comforts of home, you know, what we think of as the comforts of home with them, you know good Internet connections, good restaurants, um, all, all the usual things. And so you need to have um, you know, a certain critical mass to, to have that kind of stuff available, and you know, relatively inexpensive. So I think that there is a demand for growth up there. And, you know, as the rest of the planet warms up and places become uninhabitable and say in the Middle East or in the desert areas, Hmm. you know, there's going to be more interest in moving farther north.
0: You have, uh, I I think you're the editor of Urban Sustainability in the Arctic, measuring progress in circumpolar cities uh, in 2020, Uh, When you look at uh, what folks is, what the intentions are with respect to Arctic development, do you feel as though we have adequate guidance, uh, rules, uh, systems to govern the activity in a way that gives you confidence it can be done sustainably and not just screw the place up? (laughs)
2: I guess the short answer to that is no. Um, Obviously, you know, the main reason to go to the Arctic is to develop the resources. And, you know, that was from hundreds of years ago, that was fur and then, you know, mining, more recently energy, oil and natural gas. Um, Now it might be rare earth metals or, you know, other kinds of things like that and tourism. Um, So uh, typically... You know, there's a real trade-off between developing the place and protecting it for future generations, or or just protecting the natural beauty. And I think in, in the Arctic, in particular, there's still a strong indigenous population that's present. So land use is really the the key debate. So, for example, every time you build a mine, you're getting in the way of uh, where the local Uh, Sami people, for example, in Sweden like to move their reindeer because they move them up in the mountains in the summertime and then down in the valleys in in the winter. And so, you know, using, using the land for windmill farms, for mining, that blocks their paths and sort of undermines their traditional lifestyle. So there's not really a good way to balance between sort of the economic drive of more mining, more production. And really protecting the traditional uses of this land that, that have been going on for centuries. So so that's one big area.
1: It seems, Bob, like there is a maybe a, a moral hazard, a, a term that I believe I learned in the Elliott School building. And I probably am getting it wrong now, but uh, forgive me. But it seems like there's a bit of a moral hazard in the like, you know, most most of what we talk about, Peter, when we're talking about climate change is is like mitigating and abating uh, making it worse. And it seems like if we have uh, potential winners in climate change and they see climate change as being potentially
0: beneficial to them. Yeah. Economically.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. In terms of all of this stuff, whether it's resource extraction or tourism or whatever the case may be, that we run into a problem there potentially um, and I, the, I, I'm curious, Bob, what, what are your thoughts on that? And, and do, do are are people up there, uh, conscientious of that fact.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, the people who think it's, it's a winner for them are ones who in the fossil fuel industry who want to, you know, see the ice melting. So that makes it easier to get more oil and natural gas out of what used to be frozen ground, um, or, or, you know, even in the waters offshore. So uh, but the people who live there realize that, um, as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, you know, the 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 climate is changing much faster in the Arctic than it is elsewhere. And that's having huge consequences. So even though someone like, you know, Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia, might say that Russia is a winner from this, it's not really clear that that's true, because, you know, the the warmer the temperature gets, the more permafrost up there is going to thaw that's going to undermine most of the infrastructure they built, you know, assuming the ground will remain frozen over time. Right. Um, Yeah. We're trifling with
1: forces. We don't really, I mean, it's just like thing, the, the, the degree of change, it's hard to, it's hard to play master with, with that, you know, it's like, it's be kind of beyond, it seems like to me, it's kind of beyond our human capability up to this point. That's kind of why human society is grappling with how to mitigate it to begin with.
2: Right, exactly. These are very complex processes. So we don't really know what's going on. So even if you talk about the Arctic warming, you know, four times faster than the rest of the planet, if you look at it in a little more detail, in fact, some of it is getting cooler over time. And, and, you know, the the opposite trend. So it's warming in general, but there's so much variation across the land that it's, it's, it's quite complex to figure out what, you know, what this all adds up to.
0: Uh, Bob, when you're looking ahead uh, in your work at, at the Arctic program um, and in your work um, on sustainability, it, it tell, can you tell our listeners roughly what the population is in the Arctic circle? And has anybody sort of done a projection that's, that predicts uh, the population over the next, say, 25 to 50 years?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it depends how you define Arctic i think arctic circle so probably about four million people uh, you know in the circumpolar north wow Um, that's
0: more than i would have thought that's quite a few yeah
2: yeah it's a big area though it's a big area it's not obviously a big chunk of the international population of billions and billions but Mm -hmm. um it is significant and uh the trend line over time has been down uh people have been moving out of that area Hmm. for a variety of reasons you know most of the population had been in russia And when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of the state-sponsored projects uh, that kept people in the north uh, ended. There was no more money for those kinds of things. So a lot of people left. But, you know, again, there's a lot of variation because the regions where there's oil and gas development have been growing. There's a lot of money there, obviously. And people have been moving in to to work those high-paying jobs. So, um, again, it depends. And... But, you know, even though the trend line has been down, there are efforts, you know, as, as new industries come in, as the green economy maybe replaces the fossil fuel economy, we're gonna see more people moving up there. So I would think over time we're gonna to start to see more of a population shift to the north, you know, as you have climate refugees maybe coming from the south or other hmm. pressures from the south. And as conditions become more livable. As people develop new technologies, for example, there's obviously not a lot of agriculture in the Arctic because it's hard to grow things in frozen ground. Right. But, you know, now we have vertical farms where you can grow things in a, inside of a, a warehouse or something like that. So you might have a case eventually where you have lots of fresh vegetables and other food easily available in the Arctic and not for a high price. So, you know, you can start to bring some of these, you know, the things that we think of as comforts from home up to hmm. that part of the world.
0: When you're looking at the uh, projections and the transformation that's going on in the Arctic region, um, as a as a research sociologist, science person, you know, uh, what concerns you the most about the changes coming in the next ten years?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, the people who currently go up there are mostly interested in getting away from the rest of us. You know, it's kind of been a... a That's what I was thinking.
1: (laughs) I'm like, when when you're saying everyone's like, people are leaving, I'm like, I want (laughs) to (laughs) go.
2: Exactly. So, you know, you you go up there to get away, you know, to have your own land, to be independent, to, uh, you know, be in the great outdoors, that kind of thing. So, you know, one question is, if it keeps growing, is it going to lose that character that, Hmm. that, you know, originally brought people there? So I think that's probably one of the bigger questions that we need to address. And, you know, why does everything need to grow all the time? That's another question <laughs> we've been thinking about. Right. You know, can, can you have a, a productive and stable economy that doesn't grow? Um, so, that you know, that's an issue for the whole planet, but yeah. for the Arctic as well.
1: Well, that's heavy stuff. Yeah, that, I mean, that gets right into the just the whole damn enterprise. Yeah, that's the uh, this whole rat race is going on here. And right. maybe we don't need to be
0: hustling for the cheese quite so hard. That's right. This addiction to uh, economic growth at all right. costs. Uh, yeah. When you look at tourism, Bob, I know you mentioned uh, increases in expected increases in uh, um, cruises and Arctic tourism. Um what can you tell us about how that industry is currently evolving and how, how meaningful uh, Arctic tourism really is as an economic force in the Arctic?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, just to answer that last question, if you look at Alaska, one in 10 jobs in Alaska now is focused on tourism. Hmm. So it's, it's a pretty substantial wow. part of the northern economy. And I think it's only going to be growing. If you look at, you know, obviously, COVID put a big break (laughs) on all tourism but particularly cruise ship tourism which is the main way that most of us go up to the arctic um if you look at the figures up to 2019 before the pandemic it was you know nothing but straight up there was every every year there were more and more people coming i think in 2019 something like 1.3 million cruise ship tourists came to Juneau, alaska and, and they were anticipating, you know, the next year would be 1.4, 1.5, and, and just it's just gonna keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, so I think that tourism could be a big way to replace the declining fossil fuel economy. It also obviously relies on natural resources because you're going up there to see the, the beautiful scenery, trees, mountains, etc. cetera, bears. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, uh, you know, in any way reduce that scenery as long as the tourism is done correctly. And I think the trends we're seeing, you know, probably the main you know, climate change result of tourism is all the greenhouse gases you emit flying up there and taking cruise ships and, and all that sort of thing. Right. You know, as we get better transportation methods, we have electric airplanes, which is, you know, not too far over the horizon. We have much more efficient cruise ships, you know, green, they're talking about green corridors. Now where you can have almost no greenhouse gas emissions coming out of cruise ships. You're going to see a much more, um, climate friendly economic activity. And I think, you know, in the future tourism, I think that's, we're all going to be tourists, you know, eventually, and hopefully at some point have more free time, have the ability to travel without having terrible climate consequences. Um, so uh, I do see, uh, tourism as, you know, probably about a 10th of the economy now in in many Arctic regions and could be growing over time as, as other things like oil and gas production.
0: You know, as an industry, the cruise industry, something that we do, we do track and kind of cover in coastal news today. Uh, if you look at it in the Caribbean, for example, uh, the proliferation of, uh, of the cruise industry in the Caribbean has important sociological consequences. Uh, communities that are, uh, small and remote are overwhelmed when one ship after another filled with, you know, 3000 passengers dock and discharge this, this load of humanity into these communities. It transforms everything from the social uh, structure of the town to the economic structure of town, plus just the impact of that many people. Um, It raises the question of what, you know, as we gain greater access to the Arctic and more and more people go and the infrastructure gets better, uh, what are the chances that the the social structure particularly the indigenous population of uh, not being overwhelmed by this wave of of new economic power coming into the region
2: mm-hmm. yeah that's an excellent question in fact this summer i was also in norway we went to the city of flam which has about 300 people up in one of the fjords and they had a cruise ship come in you know the ca- capacity of the cruise ship is up to 6500 now So you have this massive cruise ship come into this tiny little town and then everybody gets off and um, exactly the same thing you're talking about in the Caribbean uh, just sort of takes over, but you know, they have a lot of infrastructure now, a lot of things for those folks to do and it it definitely stimulates the local economy uh, to some extent. Sure. Um, But for the indigenous population, it's kind of a mixed picture because um, in some ways it's very good. It, It, creates job opportunities for them. It creates a market for their traditional crafts. You know, people all want to buy souvenirs when they get off the boat. And so this is a good opportunity to sell stuff to them. Um, it also gives the indigenous population there a chance to educate, uh, you know, the average American or the average tourist, you know, what their lifestyle is, what their traditions are, um, you know, how long they've been living on this land that, you know, has only been the United States for a couple hundred years and they have a much longer perspective on what's been going on here. Um, so so there's a lot of benefits for them. But yes, it, it also, um, having all these people come in and kind of overwhelming the local community has an impact. In some of our studies, we've looked at places in Alaska where you know, if they move the dock away from the city where they live and sort of put it a little bit outside of town, then you can have the tourists get off and sort of be in a small controlled area where you have the tourist shops. <laughs> Keep and them and over
0: everything. there in the little Disneyland, <laughs> put some well, you know, yeah. have totem pole and some knickknacks and say, here, here you go. Yeah. You know, get off and you've get experienced get yourself, the have, coast. Have yourself some salmon jerky and uh, get yourself a little totem pole and get back on the boat and we'll see you later. Kind of thing.
2: Well, that could be the solution, yes, because, <laughs> you know, then people feel like they've had an experience of, of indigenous culture, but they haven't actually, you know, been right, right where the indigenous people actually live.
1: <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, whether it's by cruise ship or by uh, car or however the Sites hell, so, you know, you, yeah. what we're talking about, though, in a way is the continuation of the gentrification yeah. of the shoreline. And it's a shift away from... You know, I'm, I'm talking, you know, not specifically about indigenous um, existences, but certainly, you know, like we talk about the main shoreline a lot here on this show, Bob. And um, what's happened there, you know, you've gone from basically a fishing coast where all of those little villages that are now quaint, cute little towns. Well, those were working class fishing villages, all of them. And the economy was pulling fish out of the sea. And that economy supported all the people that built those houses and cleaned those houses and made the restaurants and, you know, did all that stuff. That was the cornerstone of the economy. And that has, of course, changed over time. And the people that have gone in and, you know, those people have left, They've, they've been pushed out because of remote work and other sort of kind of economic pressures that have caused the value of that real estate to go sky high. And my concern for the local residents in the Arctic, particularly areas that are going to be impacted by tourism, is that the people aren't going to just be tourists, that they're, they might come and stay, particularly now with remote work. And I, I mean, I'd be curious, I mean, did the pandemic change? Did people move up to Alaska and kind of Arctic areas during the pandemic? Because, you know, I realize wintertime is brutal, but... Man, summertime, yeah, stunning,
2: yeah, yeah. I think there were some efforts to attract people, you know, given that model, that they could be remote workers and you know pay their taxes really remote, say Alaska, but (laughs) you know doing their work in Silicon Valley or whatever. Um, But it it wasn't a big trend, I I think. And the difference more people
1: went to Hawaii uh, and stuff.
2: (laughs) Exactly, there's other options, right? If you're talking about remote work, you're talking about competing with the rest of the world. And so it's going to be a special kind of person who wants to do that kind of remote work up in Alaska. Someone Mm -hmm. who's pretty rugged and outdoorsy. It's
1: like Death Um, Valley people and Alaska people, probably right. Same kind of cut from the same cloth.
2: Um, The other thing is that Alaska uh, and most of the Arctic is not is remote in the sense that it's not connected to the road system. You know, it would take you a long time to drive. <laughs> <Right>. Yes, <laughs> it to is. Do from like, say, New York City up to Fairbanks, Alaska, you could do it. But and then to get down to Juneau would be impossible because it's off. It's completely off the road system. You can only get there by boat or plane. So yeah, there's a lot of the, that remoteness is kind of a defining feature of the Arctic and the isolation. Well, so and it's. I, it, yeah.
1: It's one of the reasons why um like the Bahamas the the cruise ship is such a oh, you know, a, a door opener in terms of accessibility for people. And it's also why, you know, the mm-hmm. these cruise ships you can put you can deliver 5,000 people yeah, into a into a it's very tiny like community. Yeah. And that is yeah. a major thing. And I, you know, I took a cruise in March, Peter. It was fantastic. Yeah. And uh, Special we, got, one. we got dropped off uh, in at St. Croix at the cruise terminal there. I couldn't tell you the name of the little town we were at, but um, you know, they really I mean, in this particular case, they got hit by a hurricane and the cruise docking area had been shut down for years. And man, the economic toll, we were one of the first, and then the pandemic shut it down. In the local economic the toll. The local economic toll of not big having. time. There, there was like nothing open. There was nothing there. Hmm. And uh, didn't, it didn't prevent me from having a great time. I was able to navigate <laughs> to a cool beach. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it, it's, it's an interesting dilemma. And it it brings up what on uh, ASPN's big tourism podcast, they talk about sustainable tourism yep. all the time. Yeah, Erica Sears does a great show about that show. Superb show. And uh, I think this is one of the most interesting areas, actually. Uh, that we talk about on the American shoreline is sustainable tourism because it gets into the food, it gets into the fuel, yeah. it gets into the activities that tourists do. What are you doing? Because if you're taking hikes and doing ecotourism activities, it can be actually, you know, and then, you know, buying sustainable food and not taking a tremendous toll on the, yeah. and as you would point out, Peter, you have to have the infrastructure, for example, the sewage infrastructure to yeah. accommodate like, you know, doubling your town size yeah. when one of these ships come in.
0: Right on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob, you're you're in you're in D.C. at George Washington University, you know, the center of American politics. Um, when you uh, do you have a chance to uh, keep an eye on uh, United States policy in the Arctic region? And if you do keep track of that, uh, what's your sense of the country's... Give us a grade. Uh, yeah, give us a grade. How are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? What are the priorities of the United States in the Arctic region?
2: And are we yeah, missing a, anything, you know? That's a very good question. Um, I think, you know, the usual priority is, is defense. It's probably one of the number one. It, it's always been an out, you know, and, and we built the road to, to Alaska in World War II in order to supply material to Russia and the Soviet Union so it could fight against Nazi Germany. <laughs> um, so it's always been a military outpost. We have a huge military contingent there. Um, we can see more militarization of the Arctic happening under Putin in Russia. He's building more bases up there, putting more weapons. And, you know, he sees that as the future of Russia in terms of energy development and potentially shipping. So, uh, so, so it's a national defense issue. Um, you know, if you look at in terms of number of icebreakers, I think we have one and a half icebreakers right now, yeah, which is most people consider to be way too few, <laughs> yeah, and we're kind of losing losing the battle uh, with the Russians and others you know and, and having just the capacity to be in the Arctic in the winter time um, so that's important The other thing is you know energy development um, you know that's an ongoing battle in America, whether we should develop the oil reserves in Alaska, if it makes sense or not. Um, at the moment, energy production in Alaska has been going down every year. There's just not as much oil and gas production as there used to be. And so that's really hurting the Alaska economy and forcing them to find new options. Hmm. So uh, sort of, you know, I guess if we had to give a grade for like lack of a real Arctic vision, I think, you know, <laughs> it would have to be a failing grade at the moment. Certainly the Alaska senators are, are quite active and pushing for, you know, more understanding of the Arctic and and more resources devoted to it. But I think, you know, given all the other problems in the country, it kind of gets left off of the agenda most of the time.
1: Has there ever been a coherent American Arctic vision?
2: No, I don't think so. Maybe Seaward had one, when, you know, when he bought Alaska in the first place. But everybody laughed at him at the time, thinking it was a waste of money. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that property was one of the best investments ever made. You know, given the amount of resources there, right? The strategic importance, all kinds of things. You know, Anchorage is one of the busiest airports in the country because you have uh, planes flying from Japan onto Europe, and they usually stop in Anchorage. So, in terms of freight, it's huh. one of our busiest airports, and so it's a key strategic uh, location for us. And, you know, countries like Iceland have used their uh, location to really develop their tourism industry. There's a lot of cruise ships going there and, and people flying in on Iceland air. And so we could do the same thing with Alaska. I think there's a huge potential there, you know, again, on tourism and, and other uh, other things. So, um, so, yeah, we haven't really uh, developed our you know, the, the resources that we have there to great effect. So I'd say <laughs> we need to have a better Arctic vision going forward, and there's lots of opportunities there.
1: Man, that'd be fun to work on, the Arctic vision. I'd yeah. get Bob on the team.
2: I'd <laughs> yeah, love to be on that team.
0: <laughs> it Bob, on that. Bob, at the Arctic program at the Elliott School of International Affairs, t- tell our listeners a little bit about the research focus of that consortium of researchers. It's a pretty, pretty interesting group. Uh, what's the subject matter focus of your work at the Arctic program?
2: Well, the subject matter really is Arctic cities and we chose Arctic cities, which sounds a little strange, probably to most people, uh, because it's a very multidisciplinary topic. You know, a city is probably the greatest invention of mankind. Right. And so, but to understand the city, you really have to understand people. You have to understand the built environment. You have to understand how it all connects to nature. And so since at at the university, we have, you know, people who work on engineering, people who work on climatology and geography and all those different topics. This, like looking at the cities in the far north was a way for us all to come together. So, you know, I'm interested in what makes a city sustainable and, and how can we measure that in Arctic conditions? You know, looking at everything from energy to what kind of education do you have there? What kind of wastewater treatment do you have? What kind of solid waste management, hmm. but some of my colleagues are looking at things like permafrost. They, um, and I like to make fun of them about this, but they, you know, right now they're out there in the summertime looking at the active layer of the permafrost, which means you know, even though the permafrost is you know, ground that's supposed to be you know, permanently frozen, although technically the definition just means two years in a row, hmm. every summer, a certain amount of it, the ice there will melt and they want to see how far down it's melting. So that's called the active layer. So I they're see. sticking sticks in the ground and trying to see how <laughs> it goes. So we're looking at everything from... That's the viewpoint know, of,
0: a, to, of a sociologist right there. You're a stick. Yeah. You. <laughs> <Well, laughs> yeah. No, but I'm with it's, you. They, that's, that's what they're a doing. Measurement. They're sticking a it's, stick it's, in the it's, ground it's, to see how, how, how deep do you have to go before it gets solid. Yeah. You know, it's I all about energy. the stability of the soil.
2: Right, exactly. No, it's important work. I, I appreciate what they do. I'm just glad I'm not doing it myself. So, but yeah, so, so we try to bring together all these different kinds of knowledge and, and then use that. You know, so, what, so their work is important because it tells you yeah. how much the ground is sinking, for example. And, and then you see a lot of bu- pictures of buildings in the Arctic that have collapsed because the permafrost, you know, has thawed beneath them and and they're no longer structurally sound. Hmm. So, so you have that kind of, so it all fits together with cities and, and, um, management and, and there's overall relationship to nature, whether we're trying to conquer nature or just live with it. (laughs)
1: Bob, do you, you know, down, down here in the lower 48, we, talk a lot about federal shore protection projects around major urban cities like New York or Houston or San Francisco um but i know up in Alaska there are some you know really remote places um do you anticipate or in any of the st- the cities that you have studied do you anticipate relocation as being a um adaptation measure that that's going to be used mm-hmm.
2: Well, I don't think it's a problem, say, in Juneau, because just of the way the, the geography works, the sea level rise isn't going to affect them as much as you might think. But there are definitely smaller you know, villages and towns in Alaska right on the coast that are literally falling into the water. And just like in Louisiana, there, there, some of those are being relocated right now. And, and there's a lot of questions over who's going to pay for that and how's it all going to work. Um so th- so that is a very important issue but it's mostly for the some very small remote villages that, right uh, as as the coastline erodes a little bit they're, they're losing their place
0: when it, you, you talked about this multidisciplinary analysis that's happening at the Arctic program uh on cities and uh the infrastructure of cities the changing conditions all that sounds very broad ranging uh, broad-ranging. uh Does your work and the work of the colleagues that you have uh, include making recommendations on how to sustainably develop communities in the Arctic? Are you guys in the policy universe? And if so, what is it that you think is important to have sustainable buildings and cities in the Arctic?
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah, we're trying to show um, what, what's the best way to proceed in these conditions. And um, so, so, for example, this summer we brought, uh, you know, we're trying to bring together mayors. So since we're focused on cities, you know, the person who would obviously be the most interested mm-hmm. in, in any results we come up with would be a mayor who sort of has the big picture of the whole city and really has to deal, you know, with all kinds of problems uh, at the ground level. And so we are trying to come up with, with good advice uh, f- for them. And I think, you, you know, s- some of the things that we saw going on in Sweden that make a city successful could be implemented in other Northern cities. Like one, one of the key features was, you know, on the level of tourism was they had a big campground there. So, you know, Sweden's a little different cause you can drive your camper from Germany or Norway or somewhere, somewhere else and, and camp up in the Arctic region. Hmm. Um, and so, there, so that kind of tourism, I think, would be quite enjoyable for a lot of people. So, you know, we could really develop our camping infrastructure, tourism infrastructure in, in Arctic cities. The other thing we saw in Sweden was they have a whole technical university up there that's really focused on developing the technologies that are going to make the northern economy work in the future. And so I think, um, you know, in, in Alaska, we have the University of Alaska Fairbanks, which is a major research university. Unfortunately, you know, in the last couple of years, been the funding for it has been cut by by Republican governor. But though that's where the future is going to be, you know, the research connection and understanding how to develop industry and the economy in, in northern conditions. And it's going to come, you know, partly from academics, partly from entrepreneurs who are working out there. Hmm. But it's, you know, like Silicon Valley, it's going to be a symbiosis of these two of research and and um, entrepreneurship. So, so those are some of the things that, that we were learning and, and learning about. And how do you sort of, how do you create a creative economy in the far North so is and it, hopefully provide su- you know, suggestions to mayors? Okay.
0: It, it, it sounds like the Arctic program is focused on economic development and maybe the appropriate way to do it or the best ways possible. Uh, I don't know if that's if, if that's a fair characterization that the uh, that the that the program focuses on economic growth factors. Uh, but I'm curious about what the cautionary principles should be. I mean, we've we've developed cities all over the world in all sorts of remote locations. Uh, you could go look at what happened in the Arctic and how urbanization and development occurred in that remote region and draw some lessons about what worked and what didn't. When you're looking at the Arctic and the future of economic development in the Arctic, what gives you the most concern? What, what is, where does the precautionary principle come in? What, what problems do you think have to be anticipated and perhaps dealt with differently than we have in the past as a, mm-hmm. you know, as a society?
2: Yeah, um, just to, to give you sort of a holistic answer, I think, you know, we, we tend to think of it not so much in terms of economic development, although that's obviously a key piece, but in terms of sustainability. And the idea there is to balance the, the three E's, the economy, the environment, and equity issues. Okay. Um, so we're trying to think holistically about how this is going to work. Obviously, you're going to need to have a strong economy, you know, to keep keep human life going. Um the biggest issue is for the north is it really sustainable to have a city up there? Does it even make sense because the Soviets built a lot of the biggest cities like some of the like the world's most polluted city is Norilsk where they have huge mining operations and it's quite uh environmental catastrophe um, and yeah you know, I had hundreds of thousands of people living up there and, and now it's been shrinking over time but you know what makes a, a city sustainable, and does it make sense to live in in these far north conditions? I think the answer is yes, ultimately, because people want to live up there, and and there's so many benefits from being up there. If you you know like especially an outdoor lifestyle and the the long summer nights and you know <laughs> the cold winter right and, uh, as well. There's also a time to go skiing and other activities, so it's not exactly a dead zone. Um, no, not at all. The real question is, is is it, is it sustainable to be there? And so, you know, that's kind of the question for the whole planet. How are we going to live in a way that, that doesn't destroy the the whole earth? Um, so, so that's what I see as the biggest problem, um, making it work. But I think it's possible, you know, given our ingenuity, given our, um, you know understanding of indigenous cultures too they 've been living up there for thousands of years, you know more or less sustainably sure not always, but usually um, so so there's, there 's are lots of examples and and experience that we can learn from so but but the biggest question is how, how do we make this work without destroying the yeah. very thing that we came to see
0: can that i mean i 'm skeptical i mean the, the reason the indigenous population works well sustainably is because one there 's not many. Of them. And the lifestyle doesn't include cable TV and a trip to McDonald's. I mean, they're just not putting a lot of demand on, uh, not expecting the comforts of home, I guess, is how you but, put it. But, I mean, I have to say, uh, I do think
1: that sustain- the concept of sustainability is going to permeate our lives be well beyond the Arctic. I mean, here's my thinking. Sure. Broadly. Sorry, Vladimir Putin, but climate change, there is no... There's no get out of jail free card, regardless of where there are where, where, where you are on the planet. I think that just the the uh, total because and, and it it's because of the interconnectedness of mo- yeah. modern the modern world. I mean we have resources, raw materials, raw ore, you know oil products being moved, shipped all around the globe and when you look at that that is just like not that efficient now can it become more efficient at you i think so i think there are some future schemes that are very different than the ones that work today but like Hmm. i don't know i I feel like you know specifically with regard to food which is the one i like to think about the most you know i i think that like the the notion for example peter you were just on the big island hawaii yeah and do, isn't it just nuts that the beef that is raised there in Hawaii gets shipped across to California to be finished? Yeah. To then be shipped back to the Big Island of Hawaii for you to consume? Yeah. Is that the way to do it yeah, in this it world nuts. we live in where we know that, that, that the, the climate, there's no way that that's the way to do
0: it. Yeah. That, there's just no way. Yeah. So I, I, I well, do. I'm hoping that, you know, in, in the Arctic, maybe a little different, Tyler maybe we we mentioned well, like some like, you know we talk
1: about islands and how islands are really great testbeds of sustainability because historically yeah. these were isolated peoples and i think the arctics kind of similar yeah, i mean it's you a good comparison. you're you're isolated by the 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 climate and just the inhospitability uh, and the fact there's very few people so mm. you're going to have aggregations of people kind of spread apart bob i'm just riffing yeah, now we're just, you're the well, expert bob, you're the
0: expert wait <laughs> We're 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 wondering if it can be sustainably done. And we've got to come up with some new new approaches, it seems.
2: Right. Yeah, I'm optimistic that it can, but right, where those approaches are gonna come from is, is another question. I mean, the one thing about the indigenous that we were talking about, like when we were in Sweden, is very interesting because you think of them as, you know, being out with their reindeer and, and moving with the reindeer, et cetera, and having sort of a nomadic lifestyle. In fact, they all live in cities um, nowadays and they just visit the reindeer occasionally, maybe by helicopter, maybe by Hmm. snow machine. So, you know, these guys like to have the modern... modern accoutrements of life. Yeah, it's I like apologize. I, you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm generalizing so, grotesquely and, admit, yeah, uh, and erroneously, I'm afraid.
2: <laughs> but so it's an interesting integration, you know, trying to live harmoniously with nature while integrating technolo- technological development at the I mean, same time. D- d- so, you d- know, they're finding a new way of doing things that maybe the rest of us wouldn't think of. Okay. So, so I think by combining all the different kinds of knowledge, indigenous knowledge, you know, scientific knowledge, um, what we know about mobilizing different coalitions to support these kind of green economy goals. You know, I think through all that kind of stuff, we're going to come up with some kind of solution.
0: Hmm. So th- what's the largest city in the Arctic?
2: Um, well, it's like 300,000, like Anchorage would probably be one of okay. them. Or Norilsk or uh, Murmansk. I think Murmansk there, uh,
0: but I mean, and I'm, I'm curious city. about, you know, if you, if there was a new city developed, um, uh, to take advantage of the changing conditions, two hundred and fifty three hundred thousand people. I just think about you know sure there's vertical farming. I mean, just the food supply, and I and I think of the wastewater treatment and the and how those facilities would have to operate through the winter. And it's not like I guess different than Minnesota, where we've got major cities and very cold climates in the winter, but. Uh, when you're looking at sustainability and you're looking at basic infrastructure of cities, um, are there things that, uh, that jump out to you that need to be handled differently? Uh, what can you tell us about what it would take to have a half a million population city in the Arctic? What would that look like?
2: Well, one of the things that we focus on is density. So, you know, usually you'd want to have a very dense city because then you'd have public yep. transportation and, and all the other benefits of high hmm. density. Okay. Um, and some of the Russian cities are actually like that. I mean, it's not pleasant to live in them, but they are very dense. They have good public transportation, you know, opportunities in theory for bicycle paths and things like that. Although in Russia, huh. that doesn't really exist. Uh, a city like Anchorage is sort of like LA in the north. You know, it's a very spread out. Um, everyone drives a car so there's a lot of aspects of anchors that are not very sustainable but then the question would be and then we saw this in Kiruna, which is a mining town in, in northern sweden where they're actually having to move the city three miles over because it's falling into the mine as they continue mining um, they're redesigning the town to have very dense um, living conditions and that's not what people want you know they want to have room for all their toys and right cars and snow machines and things like that it makes
1: total sense to me i mean when i think of uh when i think of living in alaska peter first thing i think about is the big ass truck i
0: would have (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) just a big diesel (laughs) you know so you can get i know well that's the part of the problem is our expectations (laughs) is we want to live in harsh places but do it easily do well, it nicely and
1: pleasantly. I, I, I don't know. I think that it's what, I, when I envision an Alaskan uh, lifestyle, I don't envision an urban lifestyle. I, mm, er, I envision right. a a lifestyle that involves, okay. like, like he said, you know, acreage and space and dirt roads and kind of, you know, why go to Alaska to get away from people? I'm not interested. Like if right. I wanted to live in the city. Right. Live in a 10th floor of an apartment building
0: is not, not what you're asking.
1: Yeah. Why would I want to go there? Yeah. But, from a sustainability perspective, you can really see why everyone can't, you know, if everyone's going to be separated out like that, it just create, you know, with, with the sewage issue and the, the, all of the externalities that when we each become our own king of our castle, right? we create a lot more mess.
0: Yeah. We want power, we want, you know, gas heat, we want, you know, water. Yeah. Well, Bob, that's kind of the dilemma. You know, the density idea that you're talking about as an attribute of sustainable Arctic cities uh, doesn't appeal to the reason people go there, as you've mentioned before. How do you deal with tension of that?
2: Right. Well, we're seeing that, like I said, in northern Sweden, they're, you know, the city planners are trying to build these apartments and it's not clear they're going to really appeal to the miners and other folks who live up there. Wow. So, so, right. And you don't see that happening in Alaska either. Of course, if we can come up with electric vehicles and, and other means of, you know, heating our homes that don't produce greenhouse gases, there might be a way to resolve all these dilemmas. Hmm. Of, you know, you can live the way you want and and not have a huge consequence. Although, again, the you know the land use is the biggest one of the biggest questions in the Arctic. And even though there's huge amounts of land, the way it's actually being used now is is infringing on the rights of the indigenous people and things like wow. that. So. that everything comes with a trade-off and so yeah it's a a tough knot to untie all of this (laughs)
1: it is it's a challenging one
0: well it is very good that there is a, a group of people and research scientists and sociologists and urban planners uh giving some serious thought to uh what's coming our direction in the arctic and perhaps how to do it well uh so we appreciate the work that you're doing at the Arctic Program and the Elliott School of International Affairs there at George Washington University. Uh, closing thoughts, Bob?
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to see that the Arctic is becoming a topic of conversation in, in all different fora. Uh, and so it's it's good to be able to discuss these issues with you.
0: Well, we, we really appreciate your perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Dr. Robert Ortung. He is a research director for sustainable GW at George Washington University and a research professor of international affairs at GW's Elliott School. Of International Affairs and the Arctic Program Director as well, and a real expert. Uh, Bob, we really appreciate you sharing your insights about uh, the coming future in the Arctic.
2: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Have a great day.